0: Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read uh, verses 3 to 14, that big long sentence, and we'll consider uh, verses 3 through 6. before we read and consider uh, the passage, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, it's our delight to be able to consider your word, to continue worshiping in this way. We ask that what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we know not, you would teach us for the sake of your Son and for the sake of your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. Ephesians 1 at verse 3. Just uh, verse five and verses five and six again. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. As far the reading of god 's Word, may He bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So brothers and sisters of Hope Church and everyone with us here uh, this morning, I want to just uh, notice two things by way of introduction before we actually dive into the text. The first thing I want to mention uh, is these are more uh, applicatory things is that uh, doctrinal knowledge doesn 't equal uh, maturity. The reason I want to mention this is because uh, indeed in the Bible doctrine is taught and doctrine is important. Uh, Paul told Timothy to watch his doctrine in life and the scriptures are indeed for teaching us. There's a real, very real danger that comes uh, with learning and that danger is uh, pride. Uh, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. First Corinthians 8 uh, verse 1 Our hearts are so often looking for some doctrinal information which we can latch onto others and sort of hold over them, thinking, well, we have real insider knowledge. We really know what the Bible teaches, and we're just sort of a cut above other believers who don't have this information. Beloved, that's very spiritually dangerous. And sometimes we equate spiritual knowledge, Bible knowledge, theological knowledge, with spiritual maturity. And the two actually can be utterly opposed to one another. So, another way of saying it is this our theological knowledge uh, doesn't in any way need to equate to spiritual maturity. In fact, it's very possible you can think of a brand new believer who's just came to faith and has read, let's say, Bavink and Hodge and Warfield and maybe some great theologians, has their head full of information, and they're one year into the faith. How mature are they going to be? Not very. They know a lot. But they're just babes in Christ trying to navigate this world. And Satan's a far better theologian than any of us here. In fact, the demons in, the, in Scripture were the only ones that understood you're the Christ of God. And Jesus told them to be silent. They understood this. Even the demons believe and tremble. So, beloved, I want to mention this because as we're walking through the beginning part of Ephesians, this filled with doctrine and we've particularly noted we're particularly noticing election predestination the purpose of god's will which are sometimes doctrines used to divide people and uh, pound other christians over the head so as we study these things and learn them that's wonderful we should and we should be uh, praising god for this information for him revealing himself this way but it's very possible for us to think that thereby now we're more mature than other believers because we know truth correctly and i believe election predestination as we understand them is correct. We know it correctly. Therefore, we're more mature. And one of the ways I think this oftentimes comes home to reform churches that we have to be very careful of is this, especially with regard to elders and leaders. We think a lot of knowledge means maturity. Oh, beloved, it's, when you look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, there's one characteristic of an elder that has to do with information that's able to teach. But what are the other characteristics all about? His character. So one of the most important things for church leaders and for Reformed churches to wrap our minds around is if we're going to have elders or people serve in the church character references are far more important than a theological exam. Why? Because a person's character is far more important to God, according to those two passages for elder qualifications, than how much that individual may or may not know. I did not say a church leader shouldn't know anything. That's not what I said, or be doctrinally sound. But I'm putting this in a frame of reference, beloved. As we learn things, it's good. But it, watch your own heart. I watch my own heart. Take, take a temperature of it. Put a thermometer down in there. Am I rising to the level of spiritual pride? Do I think I'm better than someone else because I have this doctrine of knowledge correct? Or am I learning and also growing humble as I'm learning more about God? Am I praising God and giving Him the glory? Or am I really praising my intellect? Uh, it can sometimes be a razor's edge. And oftentimes we'll know how we're doing by how we treat other people. What, what do you think of, a, of, of an Armenian Christian? One who so emphasizes God's free will as to neglect God's sovereignty. Can you, do you believe that they can be more mature in the faith than you, than you are and than you, and than you can be? Because I know plenty of Arminians who are way more mature in the faith than I am, way more spiritually gifted than I am. And on this issue, we would uh, disagree uh, radically, though I hope uh, disagree in a friendly way. The second thing I want to mention is this theology is for joyful praise and becoming like Jesus. J.A. Packer said this theology is for doxology and devotion. That is the praise of God and the practice of godliness. Another way of putting it is this. What we learn must be translated into how we live. And Peter sort of tipped his hat to this in Second Peter 3.18. He said, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So catch this. If we're growing in knowledge and we're not growing in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're missing something. As we learn more, we also need to be becoming more gracious, just like Jesus. So growing in the knowledge of Christ needs to go along with becoming more and more Christ-like in living a life that is filled with grace. So let let me just end by saying this, then we'll dive into the passage. If someone walked around with their head on a platter, they were decapitated. We would call that a crisis. We would try and fix the problem. We would say something is radically wrong with this individual. They are in a desperate state at that point, and, they, and we would be right to think that. Loved, sometimes here's what happens. We're spiritually decapitated. Our head is sitting next to us spouting off all this great theology. But our lives are living like the devil. There's a total disconnect between head and heart. They're only like 18 inches from each other, but it can be a a world, uh, they can be a world apart, beloved. So here's a question for you and me. And I, I ask this, does all of our theology lead us to praise God like it did for Paul? Because when he deals with election, you know that, that section in Romans 9-11, through 9-10-11, it's like chewing rocks working through that. But how does Paul end it? Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's going off the charts praising God. What's Paul beginning with in Ephesians 1, dealing with election? Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord. Jesus. He is excited, happy, joyful. Not, not just some fleeting happiness, but a genuine happiness, delight in the Lord, praising God. So, beloved, here's a question for us. Here's how we can know our heads and hearts are connected that as we study theology and learn more about God, that we praise him more, that our lives have a genuine joy about them, and that there's a, there's a buoyancy to our faith, as it were. So is that the case with you and me, or are we just using our theology to condemn other people and look down our nose at them? So I, I want to uh, look at just two things in verses 5 and 6 to sort of wrap up this part two of last week. Number one, the privileges of election, which are adoption and being highly favored, those two things are blessed as it's translated in ESV. And then the ultimate goal of election, which is God's glory, the praise of his glorious grace. So those two things, the privileges of election, the ultimate goal of election. So if you would take a look with me at verse five, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. If you were sitting in Ephesus and had read this, this adoption as sons, it's one word in the Greek, this probably would have sent chills up and down your spine because it uses a very powerful uh, word in his day. When we think of adoption, we think of, you know, bringing someone to, into our home for the sake of nurturing them and caring for them in a way that they're not currently being cared for. That's oftentimes how we might view the adoption uh, process. So in our minds, our adoption model is really a child-based model, uh, we, we look at children and we go to them and invite them into our home. We, we often adopt them without having any idea what the child is going to be like, especially if we're adopting when they're, when they're younger. So there's a real risk in adoption. When the Roman world in adoption as it commonly took place in Paul's day, especially given the word that he uses to describe it. Adoption was largely self-motivated. It was often used by the upper echelon of society as a political move. So if someone didn't have uh, any sons or sons that they felt they had sons, but they felt they were unworthy of inheriting what they owned, they would go out and adopt sons and largely Elderly sons, so 15 to 20 years old, even older, who were well respected in the community, who had already made a name for themselves, so that there was almost no character risk associated with adopting them. They would bring them in, and then all their wealth and all their status would be passed down to this individual, and that individual could further the name of the family. So that's part of what's bound up in this word that the Apostle Paul is using here, adoption as sons. So, in using this word in Paul's mind, when you're adopting somebody, you examine them very closely. You're careful about who it is you're going to adopt as a son because they're going to carry on the family name. Don't get a slob. Don't get someone who's lazy. Don't get someone who lives like a criminal. Adopt someone who's well-respected. Now here's the, here's the crazy notion of Paul using this word. Here's why this word is just so radical. Because God looked at us before the foundations of the world, and he examined us, and what did he find? What did God discover? What did he see about us as he's predestining us for adoption? Did he see stand-up people, people who are worthy to carry the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who are worthy to bear the name Christian, who will live just like little Christ's, no, beloved, he saw a mess, fallen humanity as he's choosing us in Adam, all of us and all of our wretchedness. That's what God saw. And catch this. He adopted us as sons anyway to bear the name of Christ. He saw us with all of our faults and ugliness and sins. and He brought us into the family as sons. That's what he did before time even began. That's this is unbelievable. Why would God do this? God should have said, "Well, there's no one worthy to bear my name. <laughs> These people aren't going to pull it off. I'm not going to redeem anybody. I don't if I redeem them, they're not going to be called sons of mine because they're not going to bear a lot of resemblance to me. They have a long way to go to arrive." But God, beloved, placed his love upon us and adopted us into his family anyways. In Rome, when you were adopted, it was actually, you were actually conferred with a legal status. You're given a brand new legal status. You were entirely in. You would call your adopted parents mom and dad. They would call you a son. And what took place in the past was largely blotted out. It was something of a new beginning in many circumstances. And exactly the same thing happens when God adopts us. We're brought into a legal status. We're now called his sons and we have all the privileges of a son of God, which is really hard to fathom mentally when we consider it. We're, we're co-heirs with Christ. And here may be the greatest part of this, which is why the word as sons is in there. It's not an, ado- it's not an addition. It's not like he, he predestined us unto adoption through Jesus Christ and they just added as sons. So it's actually Part of the word, and it's a very important part. The adopted son would inherit all the wealth of the one who adopted him. So, the phrase adoption as sons is actually explicit in the Greek, and the emphasis here on sons is important for a reason. It's because in Paul's day and age, the daughters didn't get the inheritance, the son did. So when we're adopted as sons, what Paul is saying is this, when God adopted us before the foundations of the world, when he predestined us before he ever said, let there be light, he was planning to give us his inheritance to make us co-heirs with Christ. That's why being a son of God in this sense, adopted as sons is so important because it means that all of God's wealth will be coming Our way. All of the riches of the universe, of the world, are actually going to be ours. We are co heirs, co inheritors with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, if that doesn't make you stop and think, I don't know what will. He predestined us to this right from the start. I've been saying this quite frequently already during my time here. I want to mention it once more again briefly. It is not possible to acquire enough wealth to ever satisfy your soul. It's not possible for me or for you or for any human being to ever acquire enough wealth, material possessions, cars, houses, lands, food pantries filled to the brim, grain storage bins filled to the top to fill the gaping hole in our souls. It's not possible. In fact, if you want an object lesson of that, look at some of the wealthiest people in the world and ask yourself, are they also the most content? And oftentimes what you'll see is that the wealthiest people in the world are the most discontent because when you have more, you want more and greed builds upon itself. Beloved, we're going to die one day. And after we die, the meek shall inherit the earth. Everything in this universe, because it belongs to God and is going to belong to Jesus Christ and we're co heirs with Him, everything will now be ours in a very real sense, whatever that looks like. So, beloved, why would we spend, if we're adopted as sons, predestined to this, why would we spend our life? trying to buy a corner of the world and say this is mine I have arrived etc and living for that when we know when to satisfy and when we die we'll have much more than that anyways it would make no sense to live like that at all as a christian in fact we can be totally content with a lot knowing we'll get more when we die <laughs> or with nothing because we know we'll get the same amount as the wealthy man in the world when we die So, beloved, think about that when we when we live as adopted children of God. Think about what that means. We're co-heirs with Christ. I would argue that actually the inheritance part is the the most important aspect of this adopted as sons, because the son's the one who receives the inheritance. Very important thought for our Christian living. Well, I want to mention the second privilege. So we're adopted as sons, brought into the family of God, but also we are highly favored in the beloved, or we're blessed. In the beloved. So take a look at verse five, if you would. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed or highly favored us. In the beloved. Now, the word blessed, some translations have accepted in the beloved. Um, I, I think the best translation, actually, if you're going to look at it literally, is with which he has highly favored us in the beloved. A literal translation of the word behind there is to cause to be the recipient of a benefit, to bestow favor on, to favor highly, or to bless. So, God has predestined us unto adoption as sons. All of this is to the praise of His glorious grace, according to the purpose of His will, with which He has blessed us or highly favored us in the beloved. So, before the foundations of the world began, God determined that He was going to highly favor us in Jesus Christ, who is the beloved. We're going to be a highly favored people. Now, I want to illustrate this or at least walk us through how important this is to be highly favored, to be favored, to be blessed by God is. And I think we can illustrate it by looking at what happens when people are not highly favored. And I'd like to use uh, Leah from the Old Testament as an example. You remember, Jacob told Laban, hey, I'll work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Rachel was gorgeous. Rachel was a babe and he said, I want her and I'll I'll do whatever it takes. So Laban said, fine, you can work for seven years. And then what happened after seven years? Wedding night, things are going to be consummated and he slips in. Luckily it was dark. So this wasn't a huge issue. Slips Leah in the mix. And when Jacob wakes up, the text says, and behold, there was Leah. This was surprising. This was disappointing. And it drastically affected Leah because later, Jacob says, you know, Laban, you scoundrel, you tricked me. Well, work seven more years and and you can have Rachel. So indeed he gave uh, uh, Jacob Rachel and uh, Jacob worked for Laban for seven more years. Here's the impact this had upon Leah, who was the opposite of highly favored. Leah is disregarded as nothing, counted as nothing, derided, scorned, ignored, basically treated like she's absolutely nothing as Jacob's wife. Notice Genesis 29 and the verses that follow this story. Genesis 29 verses 32 to 34. Listen to this. Leah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time, my husband will be attached to me because I have born him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. Can you hear the pain of not being highly favored? The, the mental torment for Leah. My husband doesn't even want me he hates me. Now he'll notice me, son one. Now he'll notice me, son two. Now he'll be attached to me, son three. And it doesn't happen. Leah's wanting to be highly favored, wanting to be loved, wanting to be blessed. Beloved, it's the craving of every single one of our hearts. In fact, you could argue, isn't that behind most of our motivations for living? Isn't being highly favored in the eyes of men what is behind so much of what we do? Um, isn't it behind so much of what we do every day in our careers, in our endeavors, in sports, in music? How much money would you put in the offering plate if you knew that none of the deacons would notice? How hard would you study if you knew it would not elicit praise from a parent or a friend or a teacher at school? How hard would you work if there was no one to say, nice job, man, you're a hard worker. If no one showed up at the Super Bowl, how hard would the guys play? How hard would the cheerleaders cheer? Would anybody show up to do this thing? If no one showed up at the at the last hurrah for the NBA, the finals, would the players even come? Why did they go there? To be praised, loved, appreciated, blessed by the cheers of the crowd. Everybody, beloved, wants to be highly favored. It's part of our makeup. We were made to be highly favored. And in the Garden of Eden, we lost something. The favor of God for us in and of ourselves. We lost it. Gone. No longer do we look Precious to God in the sense that we did before Adam and Eve fell. Now something else has to take place. Someone else has to stand in the gap in order for us to look precious in and of ourselves. So if you're sitting here looking for a soul satisfying, life changing, heart-warming praise, favor, blessing from the only one from whom it really matters. You have it, beloved, in the beloved. You have it, brothers and sisters, in Christ. In Him, in the beloved, we are highly favored. You might ask, how in the world is this possible? Well, it's possible at Golgotha. It's possible at Calvary. That's how this became possible. How? Because the opposite of highly favored beloved is scorned, derided, treated with absolutely no mercy. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ underwent for us so that we could be highly favored. The opposite of being highly favored is to be entirely unfavored. And that's what Christ went through. His own didn't receive him. His own want to kill him. His own disciples flee. They don't understand what's going on. They don't want to bear the cost. His own people, the Jews, are yelling what? Crucify him. His own bride is sitting there, right there, signing, as it were, his own death warrant, as Paul would later on, the death warrants of other believers. In the same way, there we are, beloved. That's Jesus Christ walking through, being totally unfavored, and ultimately the the, the worst part of all of this and the best part at the same time is when he was imputed with our sin, there was no mercy from God. There was no favor from God. And for the first time, Jesus Christ walks through the hell, the agony of the wrath of his perfectly loving heavenly father in time being treated like we deserve to be treated. Absolutely unfavorable with no mercy, full wrath. Beloved, Christ went through that so that you and I will never have to go through that he became entirely despicable and ugly before his father and was treated as such so that you and I would never have to even come close to finding out what that feels like, what that experience is like, and we never have to undergo the agony of that. Beloved, that's how we're highly favored in the beloved, because Jesus Christ endured this with us in a world filled. And we're we're some of them, too. to some extent in a world filled, beloved, with people striving after favor, giving a hundred hours of their week just to make it in a career because they want people to work to praise them. Just spending countless hours on a basketball court, a football field, hoping that someone will sign them. Someone will look upon them, notice them spending hundreds of hours playing a musical instrument not to glorify God, but in the hopes that somebody will notice them in a world filled with this. How would we live differently and think differently if we knew that the same voice which called the world into being and shook Mount Sinai and breaks the cedars of Lebanon cried out this in Christ, I love you. You're highly favored. All the righteousness of my son is yours. That's how I view you. How would that affect how we live, beloved? How would that affect our daily life? Radical implications. Beloved, I think that's exactly what God says. Does his voice sound in your mind louder than everyone else's? Does his verdict of you, his high favor toward you in Christ, is it preeminent in your heart, in your mind, in your soul? Are we busy down here chasing the praise of men and trying to be highly favored in other ways? And lastly, I want us to look at the ultimate goal of election, the ultimate goal. So chapter 1, 6, to the praise of his glorious grace... And then if you look down at verse 12 in chapter one of Ephesians, to the praise of his glory, and then verse 14, again, to the praise of his glory. So one thing that Paul is making crystal clear in this opening uh, sentence in, in Ephesians is this, that God has saved us, elected us, predestined us according to the purpose of his will in Christ, given us his Holy Spirit so that he can be praised and glorified. In other words, God is in the business of redemption, so to speak, to bring himself glory, So that everything comes back to him and praises him. He's on the throne. He's worshipped. And we are not. Another way of saying it is this. God is God-centered. And to the extent that we are God-centered, like Paul, we can say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can be happy, joyful, excited. In fact, you could argue this whole sentence and this whole opening thought has to do really with Christian joy and happiness and delight. Because that's the... That's the manner of Paul as he writes this, sort of leaping off the page. Can you believe this? Bless God. Why, Paul? Because, well, let me tell you, sit down. I got a really long sentence. I'm going to blurt it out. Here's why we're blessing God. Here's why I'm so happy. Here's why I'm delighted. He can hardly contain himself. Paul put a period. I'll get to it. Stop. Stop a sentence. He can't. Why? He's so excited about it, so joyful about it. So, beloved, to the extent that we are God-centered, like God, like Paul, like the Bible is, to that extent, we will discover genuine, true joy. Another way of putting it is this. Self-centeredness equals misery and despair and complaining and anger. God-centeredness equals joy and delight and happiness. God saved Charles Spurgeon not to make much of Spurgeon, but to make much of himself. God saved you and me so that we can make much of himself of God not much of ourselves. That's why you and I are saved. So that God's glorious grace can be praised. So that God can be praised in all of his glory. Walk with me here. Just think about this with me for a moment, then we'll conclude. What do you think is going to be the happier day, the more joy-filled day, the more joy-filled individual? Take Joe. I don't think we have any Joes here. If you're a visitor, your name is Joe, I'm sorry. Joe and Sally. Okay, Joe wakes up. And Joe's already upset at the alarm clock because he feels like he needed more sleep. And so he gets out of bed and he's upset or he he just walks into his closet. The clothes don't jump on him. He's not that great. He's got to put them on. He goes and makes his own breakfast, hops in the car and he's been hoping every day that somebody at work will put this sign above the building where he works at that says, Joe is indispensable. We love Joe. He's our hero. And the sign still isn't there. He sits in an afternoon meeting and he's feeling so slighted. He's feeling like this meeting isn't Joe centered enough that he interjects a comment and it's not well taken at all. And uh, he actually kind of makes a fool of himself. And then he feels really down and out. And then he goes back into his work. And somebody does praise him for something he did really well. But he notices that after about 30 seconds, the kind of adrenaline rush he felt after being praised was gone. And then he gets home and he thinks, well, nobody met me at the door with incredible hugs and kisses. Everybody's busy. And I'm just not significant enough. And I don't matter enough. And his whole life is centered around him. Now picture Sally. Sally wakes up wondering, I'm wondering how God's going to use me today. I'm tired. I don't like the alarm clock just as much as Joe, but, but I'm glad to have life. God preserve me. And Sally goes into her closet, and she's not upset because she understands clothes don't exist to jump on her. She dresses herself. She has breakfast. She goes to work. And the afternoon meeting, is not going how she wants, and it's not Sally-centered, but she thinks, God hasn't given me all the wisdom in the world. I wonder how God's going to use this meeting. I wonder how God's going to use these decisions. And somebody praises her, but Sally realizes, you know what, I'm just using God's gifts. So I'm thankful for the, for the praise for my work, but ultimately I've got God's praise. And she comes home and she starts thinking, how can I bless the people in my household? How can I be a blessing to my kids, to my neighbors that are going through a difficult time, to my husband? whatever Whatever is in the life situation of Sally, beloved, who's going to have a more joyful, blessing-filled life, as it were? Being able to say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is it? Joe, self-centered, or Sally, God-centered? Sally. But how is this with us? Let me let me just finish by just asking a couple a couple questions. It's this. As we live during the day, just tomorrow's hitting Monday. As we live, where are our minds? What do we think is the most important thing in this world? Is it us getting praise? The praise of our glorious grace. Oh, I was so kind to that individual, Lord. Why aren't I being praised for it? The praise of our glory. Is that what we're living for? Lord, I, I know this. I succeeded in this, in this at my job. I'm incredibly gifted here, Lord. Where's my praise? Is that why we wake up in the morning? Because if that's how we wake up in the morning, catch this. We will be miserable. Unhappy. Angry at the world because they're not giving us our due, right? Because people aren't praising me. It's the coworker who's got a problem. He won't tell me how good I am. My neighbors won't. They can. Everybody can see my lawn's perfect, right? Praise me, praise me. Beloved, if that's our life, it's going to end in misery because we know inherently that we're not big enough. Way down in the depths of our souls, we know we're not big enough to be glorified. We know that we're not the reason that this world was created. We know we're not the reason that, that God redeemed us. Ultimately, the real reason God redeemed all of us is to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glory, because he planned the whole thing. So beloved, here's, here's just a, here's a homework assignment for all of us. Live a God-centered week. That's not assuming we didn't last week or that we haven't been for 30 years but press on and continue on living a God-centered life then because the weights off us. Well, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the world. God didn't save me because he thought I can't be glorified without this individual. No, God beloved saved us so that he could get all the glory and all the praise regardless of us simply because of the way he did it before time began before you and I were ever even a thought in our parents' eye, before our parents were even a thought, in our grandparents' eye, before any of them even existed, God determined that you and I would be in heaven because of the blood of His Son. Now that's marvelous. That is glorious. And when that soaks all the way down, that elicits praise and a life that is just filled, as Paul's was, with joy, with contentment, with peace, with a Christian happiness that the world is starving after wondering, nobody's praising you. You're way better than I am at this job. And yet I'm above you in rank. How are you not upset and angry? Oh, because I've been highly favored in the beloved because when it's all said and done, I know God loves me and I'm going to inherit eternal life. And everything in this world is going to be mine someday. Let's, let's pray.